Let's pray and then we'll get into Exodus and talk about some things. God, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have to be in this place this evening. We're thankful for the community that's being built. We're thankful for the friendships and for the relationships that are being built in this place. We're thankful for uh, people being open and honest and authentic with who they are. We're thankful that as we gather around um, tables and share meals and have conversations that we can encourage one another, that we can challenge one another, that we can uh, point each other back to, to you to your son, to his death and his resurrection, for us, for life, for hope, for forgiveness. God, in the midst of whatever it is that is going on in our lives, I pray that you would be present and that you would break through. The walls that we have built up to keep ourselves from you, I pray that you would break through this evening through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, as we dip back and look into the Old Testament, may these stories not just be ancient records of a people that has had many days in between here and there, but may they be life to us even now as we think about Jesus. May we learn something about ourselves as we reflect upon Moses and the person that he was according to your word. May we be challenged and inspired to become agents of justice and reconciliation and hope in this community. God, ultimately, in everything that we say and do, might we be challenged this evening to be conformed into the image of your son and as we leave here, present an image that is authentic to who he is, to the people that you have placed in our lives. God, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for the salvation that we have that's only through your son, Jesus. May we proclaim his name well this evening. Pray these things all in Jesus' name, amen. So our text this evening is from the book of Exodus, and we will be reading from chapter two. Last week, we left off as little three-month-old baby Moses is being floated down the Nile by his mother to escape this edict from the king of Egypt who was wanting to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. And we saw this strategy of Moses' mom as she floats her son down the Nile, perhaps with... um, the destination being Pharaoh's own daughter. And as the story reaches its climax, Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses to become her own son, but not before she actually gives Moses back to his mom so that she can feed him and nurse him and, as I will argue, raise him in the ways of the Hebrew people for the next two to four years before giving him back to the daughter of the king of Egypt. And we pick up this story, as we'll say, sometime later. This is Exodus chapter two, beginning in verse 11. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Raul, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? 
They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he, Raoul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him, invite him to have something to eat? Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The word of God for the people of God. I've talked about this before and I've gotten some mileage out of it, but when I was a kid, the innovative technology of the day was known as a flannel graph. This is how people taught the Bible. It was a big felt board and they had cut out characters that were kind of like paper dolls, but they had Velcro on the back so that you could just stick the Velcro character up on the flannel board and then just walk away, letting Moses or Noah or whoever just hang there, suspended. Kids loved it. Now, I've told the story of my testimony. You guys seem like you need a decent story right now, so I'm just gonna dip back into my own history to kind of bring you out of your shells a bit here because this is gonna be a long 30 minutes if we don't do that, if we don't set some parameters here. But when I was four years old going to vacation Bible school, you guys have heard this story, right? There was a girl who caught my eye and I told my mom, mom, I need to get on my orange floral print bathing suit in order to win this girl's heart. You've heard this story. The thing of that evening was we had the flannel graph there and it was a vacation Bible school at the end of the time and we were learning about Jesus. But the thing about it was, as I'm sitting in the front with my orange floral print bathing suit, this old couple, real old, right? I think they're still alive, maybe even older today. In fact, they are older today. That's how science works, people, okay? They put Jesus on the flannel graph and this is like 1985, 86. They hit the black light and Jesus illuminated, shining. People fell to their faces and said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Revival broke out, bathing suits and all, and it was just a, a great night. And for me, I know that like, there's a flag in the ground as I look back on my past with this flannel graph moment, okay? You don't tell stories, though, in the Old Testament. Not all of these stories are flannel graph-type stories, Okay, kids, let's all sit around the magic carpet and let's tell you the story of how Moses killed an Egyptian for beating a Hebrew slave. It, it just doesn't happen, right? So there's these stories that resonate with kids and you can see here on the screen, Moses in the little basket and his mom floating him down the river and off to the side you see Moses and Pharaoh potentially or the burning bush, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. But this story is left out of these Moses stories that are told to children. One scholar says this narrative concerning Moses's formation as an adult is not much known or read in the church. We tend to skip directly from the idyllic birth story to the account of the burning bush, that story we looked at last week where a sweet little three-month-old baby Moses is being floated down the river, to the story of Moses' call where he meets Yahweh in a burning bush that is not actually being consumed by fire. But skipping over this material, Walter Brueggemann says, 
permits the narrative to be a rather romantic tale of religious experience under the hidden protection of God. And this material that we're going to be looking at in the first bit of tonight's text, this material in verses 11 through 22, forces the narrative of Moses into the arena of deep social conflict and of violence and brutality that are inescapable in an unjust society. We're looking at deep social conflict and violence tonight. And this is not the type of, of text that you would gather little children around to teach them. But here in this passage, we see Moses, who in some manner of speakings is without a people group. He's a Hebrew born to Hebrew parents that has been given over to an Egyptian household to be raised. And Moses is beginning to struggle and wrestle with his own identity about how he understands himself. Hebrew, Egyptian, which side of the aisle am I on here? But we also see this group of Hebrews that are continually cast out. Remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, the Hebrews are actually an out group. They are marginalized. They are oppressed. They are pushed off to the sides because nobody trusts them. And for the Egyptians, they only want to use them for their slave labor to help in the building of these big, vast store cities. And Moses is watching this unfold and doesn't quite know where he lands on these Things. We'll see in a moment where he does end up putting his feet down, but this is not your typical kid's story. But unfortunately, as Brueggemann notes, this is also not a story that is told often in this sort of setting. We have people learning about a difficult passage where Moses is asserting himself, beginning to assert himself as a leader of a people in the midst of complete and utter social tension and difficulties. I can't help but as we continue to wrestle with the book of Exodus to see some parallels within our own society where the lines have been drawn so deep between people groups. And we have people on this side that do not want anything to do with this group of people or vice versa. And here we're beginning to wrestle with a text that is trying to deconstruct some of these social tensions. But also here in this passage, we're seeing the violence that is being brought out, not only with Moses killing this uh, Egyptian slave master, but also the fact that his dad slash king wants him to be killed. We have no idea what's going on in Moses' mind in this story, but we see here two distinct parts. And this evening, I want to bring them together perhaps against my better judgment. We've got a lot of slides here in the show this evening, folks, but just stick with me. It'll be okay. I'll try to tell some stories as we go. But for some people, they want to break up 11 through 22 as its own distinct story and that tag at the end where the Israelites are crying out to God and God responds. I want to bring those two things together because what we're going to see is Moses beginning to be the leader of this people and beginning to be one who stands up against injustice. Meanwhile, his people have been suffering for a long, long time. So there's two parts to this story and I want to bring them together and we're just gonna kind of march through. This is a bit more verse by verse than I'm, uh, I like to do, but we're gonna do it anyway, okay? Tough crowd tonight, people, okay? All right, one day after Moses had grown up, let's go back to our flannel graph here, and if we're gonna dip into the biblical account, we've got sweet little baby Moses who's three months old. The text says that when Moses was three months old, his mother could no longer hide him. Scholars are 
in some debate on what that means, whether he's too loud or too big or what have you, but she begins to float him down the river because he's three months old. Now you see also Moses here, and this is jumping ahead, and if you're not a church person, you don't know the story, what's gonna happen is Moses is going to be the guy who goes back to Egypt to lead Israel out of Egypt. Spoiler alert, okay? But when Moses stands in front of Pharaoh, guess how old he is? He's 80 years old! I thought that'd be a bit more dramatic, okay? He's very old. Now, some people have argued that these are just round numbers that people are using here, but there's been a lot of time because when Moses was being floated down the river, there was oppression going on with the Israelite people. And Moses, as the leader of this um, movement to bring them into freedom and life, these people have been oppressed for a long time. And this completely colors how we look at these last few verses of this passage when they're crying out and groaning in their hard labor and in their service. They've got nothing left. And this is some 79 years and nine months later after little sweet baby Moses is floated down the river. Now you say, okay, that's great, but what about the story that we're looking at tonight? I'm glad you asked. It doesn't say anything in Exodus as to how old Moses is. It just says one day when Moses had grown up. We don't know what that means. But there was this guy named Stephen in the New Testament. He was a martyr for the faith. And as he was being stoned because it was not good to be a Christian at this time, he launches into this sermon, a long sermon where he's retelling Old Testament history that leads to and is culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is exactly how we should be reading the Old Testament. It's not just moral principles so that we can become better people. It's so that we can see Jesus with more clarity and purpose. And Stephen is modeling this for us, but when he goes back to talk about this particular passage, he says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. This is 39 years and nine months after sweet baby Moses has been floated down the river. So in between last Sunday and this Sunday, according to Stephen in the New Testament, there's been a long time in between these events where Moses has been within Egyptian, an Egyptian home, learning Egyptian customs, living as an Egyptian for all intents and purposes. And now he begins to go outside. And it says he begins to go out where his own people, it's uh, literally where his brothers were. And you can not really see with, with clarity who he's talking about. Maybe his brothers were the Egyptians that were overseeing this work. But as we continue reading, it says he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Remember I talked about last week how Moses' mom had this two to four years of formative time with her baby boy. And I said, and don't you know that she'd be teaching him what it meant to be a Hebrew. And we're starting to see this work out where when he leaves the confines of his Egyptian home, the luxury, the riches, the, everything at his beck and call, and he goes out and he sees his own family, his brother being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, something stirs up inside of Moses. So we have this first bit where he's trying to figure out who he is. Am I Hebrew? Am I, am I Egyptian? I don't really know how I fit in here. But in this passage, what we see more clearly than anything else is Moses' character, particularly Moses as, oh no, no, 
as a decisive and hasty and impetuous person. I got ahead of myself there. I got decisive and I got hasty and I got impetuous with my clicker, okay? But Moses is that person who when he sees a wrong in the world, he wants to right it on behalf of the weaker person. This is a theme throughout this passage where Moses becomes the advocate, the agent of justice on behalf of the weak person. When a Hebrew is being beaten by this Egyptian overlord, he does something. When two Hebrews are going at it, it says that he engages the one who is in the wrong. When his ladies are being threatened by the shepherds, as we'll see, he says, not on my watch. Not while I'm trying to get some of these ladies, okay? But here, what happens in this first story is Moses sees his brothers, his own people that are being oppressed, being violated, being uh, potentially beaten or um, the verb there is actually the same verb that, that is used here of Moses. They nakah this person. They are striking this person, perhaps even to the point of death. But it says Moses looking this way and that way. Remember, he doesn't know how he fits in. Am I Egyptian? Am I Hebrew? What am I supposed to do? Is anybody looking? What's, who am I in this defining moment? And it says that Moses killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is a difficult passage. And people have looked at this passage with, with different lenses. One scholar says, Moses' deadly blows to the Egyptian are hardly just. For the Egyptian he kills has not fatally struck a Hebrew man, yet there is no disapproval in the narrative. The, the scripture doesn't say anything wrong about this passage according to um, what Moses has done, which doesn't always mean that it's A-OK. The Bible is silent on a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that it's A-OK. But one scholar says, this doesn't seem like it's just at all. Another scholar says, Moses' actions here should not be interpreted as an act of vengeance or rash zeal, but as a, this is fancy scholar talk, as a proleptic execution of divine justice against Egypt. And you're all sitting there saying, huh? It means that Moses is becoming the person that God will soon become as he judges the Egyptians. Same verb that's used, Moses here, he nakahs this Egyptian overlord, and God will nakah these people later. So some people say that there's a tie between what Moses is doing and what God is doing. And finally, my main man, Walter Brueggemann, says the Egyptian is actually killing the Hebrew slave. And Moses inverts the power relation and does to the Egyptian what he is doing to the slave. For Brueggemann, this is a matter of life and death, and Moses sees what is going on and enters into the narrative and takes care of business. Now, the first thing that we should say about this is, this is difficult, any way that you shake it. The second thing that we should say about this is, this is an ancient culture that is very different from our own culture. We do not take um, principles from Moses and say, so we should also do something similar to this. That's not really how it's working here, but we need to see Moses for who he is in the midst of this um, passage and seeing Moses as the one who is attempting to stand up against injustice. And this is the first of three key events in this passage where Moses is doing that. The weak one is being beaten, perhaps even being killed. We don't know. And Moses steps in to do something about it. I don't know how much more to give you on that. And, I, and quite frankly, I don't really know what to do with that because scholars seem to be split on, on what this does. But the, the characteristics that we see of Moses in here is he's decisive, he's hasty, he's impetuous, and he's wanting to stand up for the person that needs somebody to stand up for him. Okay? 
Then it says the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, that's a technical term there, the rasha, the wicked one, the wrong one. Um, why are you hitting, same verb, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Note here that Moses does not scold or judge or reprimand. He only stops the violence. And this line from Brueggemann, I had to keep coming back to him because what he's saying I think is important. He understands very well that any alternative future for the marginated Hebrews depends on solidarity, which is precluded by internal conflict. You have this marginated outgroup that is pushed off to the side and they're beginning to fight amongst each other because they can't fight with the people over them because that would be certain death. And what happens is they begin to act out against one another in violence and Moses sees this and says, stop, you're killing yourselves. Why do you keep doing this? If anything is going to change, we must be in solidarity together. And Moses is trying to advocate for these people without stepping in to hurt or cause violence, but just stepping in again to see that his own people are starting to feel the effects of their Egyptian overlords. But the response from this person is, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Which leads us into this theme where Moses is rejected. This is the first time that Moses is rejected, but we see this theme over and over and over and over in the book of Exodus. For example, spoiler alert, Moses leads people out of Egyptian slavery, okay? And he leads them to the Red Sea. And they start looking back. They've got the sea in front of them and they've got the Egyptian army closing in on them from behind. And they say, Moses, you brought us out here to die. What's wrong with you? And they begin to reject Moses on the, the shores of the Red Sea because they don't see any sort of future ahead of themselves. But God miraculously uses the wind to separate the waters and they, they march on through and they get to the other side. They sing a song about it. They have a great time. Somebody probably has a tambourine. It's a jam session. But then they say, we don't have any water. You brought us out here to die. So God gives them water. And then they say, I'm hungry. I want some food. So God gives them food. It's like this whole time where these people, they just keep rejecting Moses as the leader of what's going on without seeing what God is doing for them along the way. And this is the first of those notes where they keep rejecting Moses from being the person who's trying to help and trying to lead them from slavery and oppression into freedom and life. And again, Moses is dealing with the person who is wronging his fellow Hebrew and is trying to help them. Now, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tries to kill Moses. And you have to ask, this is not cool to psychoanalyze the text, right? But you have to ask, what kind of relationship did Moses have with his dad? He wanted to kill all the Hebrew babies until Moses' mom floated him down. And then the Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, he's cute. I want to keep him. So Moses grows up for 39 or so years in Pharaoh's own home. And the first time there's a problem, the first time Moses steps out and begins to mix it up with the people, dad slash Pharaoh wants him dead. It's not cool to, to, to try to think about what was going on in Moses' mind, but at the same time, this guy had no home. He wasn't at home with his Hebrew people. He wasn't at home with the Egyptian people. Dad wants to kill him. This is not a successful sort of life for Moses here as he's trying to figure out what's going on. He flees from Pharaoh and he went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now, when I was in middle school, the way that you got ladies 
in middle school. This is, this is beyond the orange floral print bathing suit, Jesus, black light, okay? This is middle school. You go to the Friday night football game and you do laps around the football field, practically chasing the ladies that you think are cute. This is how we did it in Laurel, all right? So you just, you walked around and you're like, yeah, all right, okay, yeah, all right, okay. When you finally got old enough, that wasn't successful, it didn't prove to be successful, okay? When you got a little bit older, Evan, you know what I'm talking about here, you get your car, you'd go park it at the shore stop, and then you would ride approximately one quarter of a mile down to French's food right, park in French's food right, and then you'd go back to the gas station. That's how you got the ladies. When I was in college, you sat on your front step with a guitar and you played praise music. I went to Bible college and the ladies there were very impressed by a songster, okay? Now, in this text, this is sort of a how you doing sort of type scene, okay? When you find Moses at the well, this is where the ladies are, okay? And the text kind of leads us there. It says, now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Yeah, he did. And they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. Yeah. This is a type scene, right, where Moses is trying to meet the ladies, maybe, but whenever you see Moses at the well and the ladies start coming out, this is a moment, okay? But now, some shepherds, it says, came along and they, they drove the girls away. <laughs> but Moses, he got up and came to their rescue. That's a really weak translation in the NIV. It's really like he saved them and he watered their flocks. Happy Valentine's Day, ladies. <laughs> what can I do for your flocks this evening? Can I water them, please? Okay? Now, what, what's happening here is, and this is a type scene throughout um, the Old Testament where people would go to the well to meet their potential wives. This happens with Isaac, or at least Abraham sends a servant on behalf of Isaac. And this story is funny because he's like, Lord, let me know who will be the woman for your servant Isaac because they will want to... Um, give me water, and they'll also want to water my camels. I forget if it's camels or not, but basically these, these women, they are women of industry, and they're like carrying around hundreds of gallons of water to, to water this guy's camels. You know, he's like, yes, you're the one. I mean, that's love, I think. Same thing with Jacob. Like, he meets his lady at the well, and Jacob's whole love story is completely jacked up, but Moses, we see him here, but what happens is we don't have any time to let the romance develop, people, because as soon as Moses is sitting there at the well and he sees the daughters of this priest of Midian, some shepherds show up and try to drive them away, and again, Moses becomes that hasty, decisive, impetuous person that says, no, 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 not on my watch. And I have to believe that Moses would do this even if he wasn't trying to score with the ladies, okay? Because this is the type of person that he is, but here it just ends. Moses drives these people away, waters the flocks, and the girls go home. 
And this is interesting because it says, when the girls return to Raul, their father, he asks them, why have you returned so early today? Some people said that this was their usual task was to go and water the, the, uh, the flocks, but they might have oftentimes seen these shepherds that would give them such a hard time. And Raul is saying, why are you back so early? As if to say, why are you here and not having to put up with these crazy shepherds? You could read that in different ways, but some scholars seem to be... Um, in disagreement on that. And they said, an Egyptian, note, an Egyptian, not a Hebrew, an Egyptian. Moses has no home. He has no people. Nobody knows and understands who he is. When he goes out, he says, I identify with these Hebrew people. But then when he goes to get a lady at the well and to save them, they say an Egyptian, because of his dress perhaps, rescued us from the shepherds. And he even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now let's return to the Old Testament romance here. Okay. Because Raul says, girls, go get your man. And the text says, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. It's beautiful, isn't it? We have these ladies who are saved by Moses at the well, and then he goes home, and Raul says, just gives him one of his daughters, and Moses is like, praise, okay? And there's not a lot that's going on here, but Moses is he's staying with the man, and the man gives Zipporah to Moses in marriage, and yeah, that's a sweet moment. And they have a kid. The, I told you last week about this is good storytelling, but here it's just like we've got different events and they're all kind of jammed together. Moses meets this girl and soon she has a child. I was getting ready to say she pops out a child, but that's probably not an appropriate thing to say. She has a child. I don't know why I told you that. I should have just self-edited. <laughs> she has a child and they name him Gershom. I submit to you, if anybody is looking to have a child, that Gershom would be a name to choose. That's all I can say about that. I hope we don't have any Gershoms in the the house tonight. But Gershom means a stranger there because Moses has no home. My doctoral supervisor says, Moses was never at home anywhere with his family, his own people at the Egyptian court with his Midianite family or in the promised land because he will die just before Israel gets there. He lives his whole life as an alien. But even in the midst of that, Moses is fighting for the weak ones to allow them to have a chance. Moses sees the injustices that are taking place and he steps in to right the wrongs even though no one quite knows how Moses fits into this. Moses is this decisive and hasty and impetuous person. We see that throughout and we see the flaws in him becoming to, uh, coming to the surface here but he is still an advocate for the weak, which brings us to this question right before we launch into these next three verses that I think are very key for us, but we can pause here for a moment and say, what about us? Are we comfortable with where we are? Do we have eyes to see the weaker ones around us? Do we have eyes to see the out groups who have been marginalized and cast off that society has not put any value or self-worth that perhaps when those people wake up the only voices that they hear are the negative ones that say you won't contribute to society you can't 
you can't be a church person because of X, Y, and Z? Are we able to see those people? And beyond that, are we able to step into their lives and begin to do something for them? We talk a lot about justice here. And sometimes the meaning of that word is lost because it becomes conflated with all sorts of political stuff and all sorts of things that are happening here. But what I mean by this at its very core is that we look after the weak and the people that have been oppressed and we attempt to bring them in for the sake of Christ. We see hints of that in Moses and this is, a, this is a bad way of reading the Old Testament because I believe that this is pointing us ultimately to Jesus who is the ultimate one who sees the people on the outskirts and brings them in through his reconciling death and resurrection. But what about us? Are we able to see the wrongs in the world and do we have the courage to assert ourselves into some situations where we might not want to assert ourselves? Now, meanwhile, while all this is taking place, okay, these are some of my favorite verses in the entire Old Testament. It says, during that long period, and remember, this is at least 40 years, if we're gonna take Stephen at his, at his word. So we've got 40 years between sweet baby Moses floating down the river and the oppression of the Israelite people then and now. During that long period, the king of Egypt, it, he died. The one that was looking after Moses to kill him, he dies. But it says that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. Note, it does not say who they cried out to. These people are just in pain. They are just groaning. They are just crying. They will cry to anyone who hears them. There is no direct address in where they are lifting up their voices. There's pain words on top of pain words on top of pain words. There's actually four of them in this passage. The Israelites, they groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. That's lucky for them, but they weren't directing it that way. They were just crying and groaning and hurting and they had to say something because nobody was saying something for them. And some of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and this is for me, not for you, well, this is Golden Gate. It says, God has a hard time resisting a cry of protest. I love that line, and we see that here in this passage. And I want to bring this up because look at the green stuff. I think that's green, colorblind, but it looks green. Okay, just note the green. How many of them are there? Four of them. This is muted within most of our English Bibles, but if we just read this very woodenly, it says, after Israel had groaned and cried out and their hard service and all this stuff, it says, and God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the sons of Israel and God knew. He addresses these four terms from the previous verse where it's like they're groaning and they're crying out and there's something that's happening here and God is the stated subject of each of these, which is totally weird in the Hebrew, but what we see here is God hears and he remembers and he sees and he knew what was going on in the lives of his people even when they weren't addressing their prayers to him. They were just crying out because they were in such a place of injustice and hurt and pain. And God says it's time to do something about it. 
Now, again, what's interesting about this is when Moses shows up and he starts talking to Pharaoh, he's 80 years old. These people have been in slavery and servitude for generations. But here we begin to see God as the stated character in in Exodus. We haven't really seen him up to this point, but he begins to hear something. I love how this story like plays itself out. He hears something and God remembers the fact that he has promised to love these people and has committed himself to these people even though they're in the midst of this. And then he looks down and some people say he's looking down to see if what he sees corresponds with what he hears. Just let God take on some of those human characteristics for a moment, okay? God is hearing this cry and this groan and this prayer and he looks down to see if what he sees matches what he hears and when he sees it, it says, and God knew. Period. It was time to go to work for the sake of his people. Now there's things that we can take away from this because what we have is God's people in the midst of pain and suffering and it seems as though God has completely abandoned them. And I know for some of us in the midst of those moments in the hospital waiting rooms or in the classroom at SU as you're getting ready to take an exam or when your parents are going through stuff or when you're going through stuff with your significant other, it seems as though God is removing himself and there might be a season in which it seems as though God is absent. But I want to submit to you that God still hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows what is going on with his people. And there will come a moment when God decides to engage and to respond But what I want to submit to you tonight is that as we wait for that to happen, do the work for him. This is what he's called us to do through Christ. When we talk about being agents of reconciliation, agents of hope, and agents of justice, and agents of whatever, that means that we do the work as we see these people who are groaning out and crying and have this pain that they cannot even give to words or even begin to express to God. That's when we show up and we do the work while God hears and he sees and he knows he remembers for some of us tonight I know that you're in the midst of the crying out and perhaps you're so scared or so distrustful that now your prayers aren't even directed to God anymore you're just in pain and you're just crying I want to submit to you this evening that God hears you and he remembers and he sees and he knows and he wants to do work and sometimes he uses us to do that work for some of you as you're sitting here this is this is not where you are but you're comfortable and your life is good, and your kids are good, and things are going well at home, and whatever. Do we have eyes to see the people who are on the outs, who are on the margins, who have maybe even left this place because they can't be here anymore, and they can't hear these stories that we tell, and these cliches that we say, and these songs that we sing, because it doesn't seem to ring true in their lives anymore? Have we asserted ourselves, as Moses would, in their lives to say, I'm here for you and I will fight for you, the weak one, regardless of what it is that you're going through. Last thought. This is not our job in abstraction from understanding what Jesus has done for us. The beautiful thing of the incarnation is the God of the universe took on flesh, became one of us, knows what we go through, understands our weaknesses, identifies with us, became one of us. 
and took our sin to the cross and he buried it so that we could have life. This is not us trying to be more like Moses. This is us trying to be more like Jesus. That, friends, is part, a glimpse of the gospel, the good news that Jesus offers his people. So wherever you are, perhaps tonight you're sitting down here on the carpet with your orange floral print bathing suit and you're waiting for somebody to hit on the black light. I hope that these stories of Moses as the one who is seeking out the weak one to bring them in and Jesus who brings that story to its beautiful fulfillment and its climax and how he advocates for people and brings them in. I hope that that gives you a glimpse of hope to hold on, to continue raising up your cries and your groans and your protest, understanding that God hears and he remembers and he sees and he knows and he will answer you, even if he uses his people. I hope that tonight that we leave energized, not just to live for ourselves, but to see people and to meet their needs and to do so because that is what Christ is wanting from us. We pray every week that we would be conformed into his image and I hope that we begin to see that that means we love and that means we include and that means we fight for those on the outskirts to bring them into this place, to this relationship that we have with him.